0: This is the Digital Mindfulness Podcast with me, Lawrence Ampofo, session number four. podcast. I'm Lawrence Ampofo. Today's guest on the show is none other than Nir Eyal. Have you ever wondered why smartphones, applications, and other information technologies are so tantalizingly addictive? If so, you're in for a treat because in his best-selling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and his other writings, Nir focuses on the exact reasons why we're so addicted to our digital devices and services. In addition to being a best selling author, Nir is also an international speaker and a writer for publications such as TechCrunch, Forbes, and Psychology Today. So I'm really excited to welcome Nir on the show with us today. Nir, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Nir, um, I've I've read through um, I've read through the book I've read through hooks a few times and um, I've read through your website as well um extensively but I'm really curious to know as as in what is your superhero origin story like how did you even come to be um to, how did you even come to this whole field
1: well I, I don't know about all the superhero stuff <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> but but thanks for the honor uh, but my, My very uh, mundane story is that I spent several years in the advertising and gaming space. Uh, I started two companies, and the last one uh, was all about putting ads inside games. And so at the intersection of these two industries that, let's face it, are really driven by mind control, right? That advertisers don't spend all that money for their health. They spend that money because it influences people to buy stuff. And games uh, games are built, they are designed to change user behavior along a certain path. And it's at the intersection of those two industries that I saw a lot of experiments. And I saw a lot of companies come and go, a lot of techniques and a lot of campaigns come and go. Some were very successful at changing people's behavior and some were very not successful at changing people's behavior. And so what I got to do with that vantage point was to try and figure out what was the difference. What made for some products that could hook people, that could bring people back time and time again, versus the ones that nobody really cared much for? And so what I discovered, to my surprise, was that there wasn't any guidebook out there. There wasn't any uh, any toolkit for people designing products and services to, uh, to 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 turn to when they were trying to design products and services that could help people. So what I wanted to do, was to take some of the techniques that I learned from the advertising and gaming business and kind of make it available to everyone so that we can hopefully build more products and services that can create healthy habits.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really interesting because, I mean, one of the things that you talk about a lot is this idea of first to mind. Um, But what does that mean exactly, being first to mind if you're a company?
1: Right. So it turns out that one of the cold truths about business is that not it's not always the best product that wins. That, in fact, many times it's the product that forms the stickiest habit. The product that we use with little or no conscious thought uh, is the one that succeeds. And there's all kinds of products that, that we turn to without even asking ourselves, you know, might there be a better solution out there? And so the reason I say the first to mind wins is that if you can be the kind of product that is associated with some kind of of, of psychological need, and, and that need occurs frequently throughout a person's day, well, you will be the product that they turn to time and time again with little or no conscious thought. They will ultimately form habits around your product, which is a tremendous competitive advantage uh, for for keeping essentially other people out of
0: that market. And and just and just so we're clear, a habit is what now? Because you had a very specific definition of what a habit actually is, and and I think that lots of people um, listening to this will think that maybe you know that they use their their technologies now in a way that kind of um, um kind of describes um, they use their, their their technologies by habit. But um, but yeah, if you could okay. tell us what a habit is exactly.
1: Sure. So a habit is nothing more than a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. It's these impulses that we feel throughout our day uh, to turn to these devices, to turn to different products in our day-to-day lives uh, with little or no conscious thought. And of course, we have good habits and we also have bad habits. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, and,
1: And I believe that we can use the psychology around habits to help people live happier, healthier, more productive, more connected lives by helping them build healthy habits. Now, What I did not write was a book about addiction. Addiction has a very specific and different definition from habits. As I mentioned, you know habits are things that are done out of little or no conscious thought, and we can have good habits or bad habits, but addictions, on the other hand, are always bad. Addictions are these compulsive dependencies on a behavior or substance, and they hurt the user. Addictions are things that we want to stop doing, and yet we can't, despite the fact that they harm the user. And so that, that's a very different uh, behavior set. There's, a certain, there's typically a, a psychographic profile for someone who suffers from an addiction as opposed to someone who uh, might have a habit. And so there's really a, a difference there. And I, I, didn't, I specifically did not write how to, form a, how to build addictive products because we would certainly not want to do that.
0: So, um, so um, that's, that's interesting because you, you, we do have, th- for example, things like... And disorders such as internet addiction, and people will say, a lot of people say that they're addicted to things like social networking sites and things like that. Right. And, um, and again, does that does that exist? I mean, is there. I mean, in your opinion, is there such a kind of phenomenon as inter- people being addicted to the internet, people being addicted to social networking sites? Sure.
1: So you know we're really not clear. I mean, if you look at the the, the DSM, the kind of psychological, uh, the, the the guidebook of psychology diagnoses, we see that that um, there there aren't you know separate addictions for Facebook and for Twitter and for email. Uh, we do know that there's there there's probably some kind of subset of compulsive disorders uh, that fit into people's behaviors around uh, certain tools. Um, but, again, they, they tend to have a certain psychographic profile. It tends to be some kind of underlying condition uh, that qualifies as real addiction by this two-part test of behaviors that hurt the user and they're unable to stop even though they desire to stop. So when people say that they have a Facebook addiction or, or even a running addiction or, you know, a, a, a restaurant addiction, they, it's actually a misnomer. That they're, they're The real definition of, a, of an addiction are these behaviors that hurt the user? Now, that being said, I certainly think that there is a proportion of the population that does suffer from addiction uh, using these various products. I mean, certainly uh, when we see video games, I, I think video game addiction is certainly real. Uh, I think internet pornography addiction is certainly real Uh, or just in general, you know, browsing the web to to an an unhealthy extent and being unable to stop can also be qualified as addiction. But again, I think that there's a certain psychographic profile for the kind of person who goes too far. Um, Now, that being said, just because there's a small proportion of the population that may succumb to these addictions doesn't mean that companies don't have a responsibility to do something for those people and to try and help those people. Uh, so we certainly want, want to make sure we're aware of those folks. And, and I'm actually optimistic about, uh, the ability of companies to, for the first time, help these people. Because remember, you know, addiction is nothing new. Uh, addiction has been around for a very long time. But as opposed to products that existed before, uh, these interactive products that we have today, you know, like uh, addictive products like alcohol or cigarettes, you know, these companies that made these addictive products they, they could throw up their hands and say, well, we don't know who's abusing our products, right? If you're an alcohol distiller, you could say, well, we don't know who the alcoholics are. It's not really our problem. We don't know. Mm. But for the first time, these companies can do something about it because for the first time, these companies that have interactive technology know, right? Facebook knows how much you're using Facebook. These gaming companies know how much you're playing. So I'm actually optimistic, and I've written about this before, that I think that companies should start establishing what I call a use and abuse policy. That there should be some kind of number out there that when a company sees that a user is is using a product to an extent where it becomes harmful to them, where they match the profile of someone who is using a product to an unhealthy extent, they have a responsibility to do something. So maybe Facebook should set some kind of number that you know what, 40 hours a week. If you use the product 40 hours a week, Maybe we should send you a message that says, hey, you know, you're, you're behaving in a way that may be detrimental. You mean a certain, uh, you, you, you've, uh, you, you've triggered a few uh, behavioral markers that show us that you may be using the product to an unhealthy extent, and, and they could do something for that user. And Some companies are actually doing this already. So I, I hope that, that this understanding of the psychology of habits and addiction can help us build tools to actually help those people that go too far. But that being said, that's a very small percentage of the population. We're talking about two to five percent that actually do get addicted. For the rest of the population, for people who use products like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest and many uh, of these products, you know, the the, the the problem isn't addiction. It might be a bad habit, but for the most for most people, these things are very beneficial in fact. And I'm I'm a fan of these products. I, I don't want to go back to an age where we don't have our, our smartphones and we don't have Facebook and Twitter and all these products. I, I love these tools. These are fantastic tools and I think they bring people together. And so the goal of writing this book, you know, there's two reasons I wrote this book. Number one, I wrote Hook to help people build products that can create healthy habits, right? So that we can take these techniques, the psychology of habit formation that, we, that, that I learned from gaming and advertising and we can use them in all sorts of applications and tools to help people live happier, healthier, more connected lives. The second reason I wrote this book is that I want people to understand that these tools are not engaging by mistake. You know, Zuckerberg didn't get lucky. These people who built these multi-billion dollar companies didn't just stumble on these products. They are designed to be engaging. They are designed, they are intended to keep us coming back. And I think for most people, that's a positive thing, but we all need to be aware of how the world is becoming a potentially more addictive place. Then I'll be the first to admit that even I struggle with overusing these products at times. They can become bad habits. And so by understanding how these products are made, how these products are built to be so engaging, we can do something about it. We can understand, Hey, how are these products so, so, uh, uh, desirous? How do they keep us coming back? And so we can make sure that we can control our our habits as opposed to our habits controlling us
0: so so near i mean knowing what you know now knowing that you know with your knowledge now knowing that face how facebook and how these technologies are so addictive does it still shock you to see just how engaged people are with these with these products and services does does it still surprise you even now or
1: No. 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 Now, now, you know, I'm I'm on the front lines here, right? I'm in the ground here. I live in Silicon Valley where there's a new, uh, you know, there's always something new to to, 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 uh, try out. And uh, I'm constantly using uh, every new gadget I can get my hands on because I love to see uh, how technology can improve our lives. Uh, And and, and so it's pretty, you know, I, I understand very intimately why these products are, are built the way they are. Uh, many of my clients are designing products that are built to be very engaging, very habit-forming. Uh, so to me now, after you know writing this book, after three years of research, uh, and now I can I can see these patterns in all sorts of things. And, and by the way, uh, it's not just technology products. I mean, the, the same core hooks we find in uh, gambling, right, and what makes slot machines so oh, habit-forming and potentially addictive spectator sports, right? If, you know, there's one thing I, I, I'm fascinated by is people's obsession with spectator sports. Now, I don't personally like to watch sports. It's kind of not my thing. But if you ever go to a pub and you watch people watching sports, it's fascinating. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're pulling their hair out and they're screaming. Some of them are crying and they're devastated. And, you know, they put themselves willfully in these situations of what appears to be agony and yet they love it (laughs) and it's it's all done out of their choice right they want to why because it's fun it's entertaining it's it's, it's distraction and i think it's exactly the same thing that we're finding with many of these tools online
0: well i mean this leads nicely on to i mean you mentioned the about these hooks so i'm really i'm wondering if you can tell us what is the hook. I mean, that's kind of the central thesis of your book, and it's and it's absolutely fascinating. But what is the hook, and why is it so important?
1: Sure. So the hook is a pattern designed to connect the user's problem to the company's solution with enough frequency to form a habit. Mm-hmm. So we find these hooks in all sorts of habit-forming products, and they have four basic steps, four phases. These products start with a trigger to an action to a reward, and finally, an investment. So I'll walk you through these four steps very, very quickly. I mean, this is, this is kind of the central model that's throughout the book, but I'll give you kind of the, the, the overview. Uh, triggers, the, the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product is to form associations with internal triggers so that when we feel a particular emotion, a situation, a routine, or in a certain place, a certain situation, we automatically use these products. So for example, uh, when we're feeling lonely, we check Facebook with little or no conscious thoughts. When we're bored, we check YouTube or Reddit uh, or the news or stock prices or sports scores. Uh, when we're uncertain, before we even scan our brain, what do we do? We check Google, of course. So these are examples of associations with internal triggers. That's the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product, is that when you experience these emotions in your life, you automatically turn to the product for relief. Now, the next step of the hook is the action phase. The action phase is the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. It's something as simple as scrolling on Pinterest or hitting the play button on YouTube. These incredibly simple actions that give the user a reward. Which brings me to the next phase of the hook, the reward phase. Typically, it's a variable reward where there's some kind of uncertainty, some bit of mystery about the reward that's being attained. And there's three types of variable rewards. Rewards of the tribe, rewards of the hunt, and rewards of the self. These are all things that feel good and have a bit of mystery involved, or they help us gain agency and control over something that's inherently variable. We can I can give you many more examples there. And then finally, we come to the investment phase. The investment phase is where the user puts something into the product, some bit of work, in anticipation of a future benefit, a future reward. So um, accruing uh followers or uh content, putting content into a service, or data, accruing data into a service, it improves it over time. Uh, or reputation, all of these things that we do to put effort into the product, which over time increases the likelihood of passing through the hook. By loading the next trigger, meaning by something the user does to initiate an external trigger in the future, and by storing value, meaning the product gets better and better with use. And The more users run through these four phases of trigger, action, reward, investment, this is how tastes are formed, this is how our preferences are shaped, and how these habits take hold.
0: Because this all sounds completely unconscious as well. I imagine that... Many people have no idea that they're going through any of these sequences at all. But you said that you had a lot of examples there. Can you give any examples of kind of, of products where you go through these different stages? Sure. N-
1: name name a product you particularly have before me. Let's do this on the fly. I don't usually do this, so let's do the show. The no, one.
0: no problem. Well, I know because well, I read your book, and the Instagram example was was fascinating. And it'd be great if you could share
1: that. Yeah, Instagram is a great case study. Instagram was built with uh, 12 people in 18 months. They sold that company for a billion dollars to Facebook, and now it turns out that they, uh, you know, at the time, I remember when when Instagram was bought by Facebook, people thought, oh, my goodness, a billion dollars for this silly little photo app. How ridiculous. And it turns out, you know, everybody thought Zuckerberg overpaid, and now it turns out that Zuckerberg has the last laugh. I just saw two weeks ago, that an analyst, a Wall Street analyst, wanted to calculate the economic value of Instagram if you removed it from Facebook. How much would Instagram and the company be worth today? It turns out it's no longer worth a billion dollars, it's worth 35 billion dollars. So talk about the the tremendous economic value of a company that is so habit-forming. And so what's the core hook behind Instagram? Well, the, the internal trigger that Instagram wants to form an association with is this fear of losing the moment. When you see something that you want to capture, that you want to hold on to forever, you capture it with Instagram. It satiates this fear that, oh, my gosh, this moment's going to disappear forever. Let me capture it. Let me hold on to it. By the way, it's interesting to know that we almost never go and look at these photos ever again. It's not about taking the picture. It's about the satiation of the fear that we might lose the moment. So that's the internal trigger that, that Instagram ultimately wants to create association with. The, the action when you experience this sensation is to open the app. What could be simpler than opening the app? Now, the first hook when you pass through the Instagram hook is around these variable rewards of all these interesting filters that Instagram has, right? They're, you can change how the picture looks. You, you can make it something that's worthy of sharing which brings us to the investment phase of actually doing the sharing itself. When I, when I share a photo, I don't get any kind of instant gratification. Nothing really happens when I share that photo with my social network. But when I do that, I load the next trigger so that when someone likes my photo or comments on it, they load the next trigger and bring me back through the hook again. They send me an external trigger in the form of a notification that brings me back to the hook again This time, I the action phase is to open the app. The variable reward this time through the hook is what did my friends say? Now there's these rewards of the tribe. There's these social rewards of what do they think? What do they comment? What you know? What are they going to say about my photo? And now my investment is to uh, to to comment back. It becomes a communication platform. Maybe follow other people, and I start storing value in the app through successive cycles through the hook, time and time again. So that would be an example of, of one quick and dirty analysis of of, uh, of Instagram. fuck.
0: That, that's that 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 is that's fascinating, and I know it's the same company, but I was wondering as well if you could um, just kind of quick give, give a quick example for WhatsApp.
1: For WhatsApp, sure. So uh, WhatsApp is a messaging system. I mean, one one of the you know, I, I, it's amazing how many companies, if you think about it. Uh, when you look at this device that we're carrying around in our pockets and we talk or on uh, sometimes we we're, or most often what we're doing with these phones is what they were fundamentally designed for, which is to communicate. And it's amazing how many sophisticated apps really at the core are just a new way to communicate with each other. And I think WhatsApp is a great example of that, uh, purchased by Facebook for $22 billion. Uh, because it was a real threat, I think, to Facebook in the form of how people communicated. And I, I, I think uh, Zuckerberg saw that as a strategic threat, and he was worried that people would communicate more in these groups that they were creating WhatsApp than on Facebook. So uh, the, 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 the WhatsApp book uh, could be seeking connection, loneliness. You know, Every time you feel like you want to connect with someone, the action is to open the app. The variable reward is looking through these various groups and figuring out what you want to say, what they said last time, so what you can add to the conversation. And then, of course, the investment is to actually send the message itself. And when you send the message itself, you're loading the next trigger because you're likely to get a reply. Right? There's no immediate gratification of sending someone a message, but when you do send that message, you're loading the next trigger because you're likely for someone to reply back to you, sending you through the hook once again. And then, of course, the more times you pass through this core hook, you add more friends to your groups, you create more of these groups, you're investing in the platform. You're putting more and more stored value in the system, which makes it better and better with use.
0: So so then it sounds like what you're saying is that hooks then or that the habits become stronger, they become more fortified, more times we kind of pass through these processes comprising the hook. Right. So each, each right. time we, we go through it, our association with Instagram, with WhatsApp, with Facebook, whatever, gets more, gets more solidified, gets stronger, if you like.
1: Right. That's exactly right. So two things. One, the more frequently we use it, the more we, we create these mental associations that the, the, the emotional pain that we feel, the need for connection, boredom, whatever it is that we're experiencing throughout our day that doesn't feel good, we don't like these sensations, of loneliness, boredom, or uncertainty. I mean, you pick it. Whatever we feel these uh, these negative balance states, as psychologists call them, we look for a solution. And so the brain, one thing the brain does exceptionally well is to pattern match. So when the brain learns, you know, when I feel this painful sensation, this solution provides reliable relief, then there's a mental association that's made. And then over time, we don't look for other solutions to our pain, our pain is consistently solved with, that, with whatever provides relief. and So that's what we turn to time and again. And then through successive cycles, the more we invest in that product, that critical investment phase, the fourth step of the hook, the product becomes more and more valuable to us. We store more value in it, and it becomes more difficult for us to leave it. Mm. It's not impossible, by the way, just so you know. It's, you know it's not, just because you have a habit doesn't mean you, you don't have to defend that habit but it does erect huge barriers to entry for a competitor to come in and, and take your customer away.
0: I mean, earlier you were talking about, um, you kind of brought up the idea of good and evil. You know, we talked about um, the idea that kind of addictions um, are generally bad, you know, they're kind of like negatively reinforcing behaviors and they're very different to habits. But in your opinion, can technologies then be designed For evil, you know, can they can they be designed for? I don't know. Like I say,ing I guess um, reinforcing these these negative habits. And if that's so, how is it possible for people to discriminate between useful and unuseful habits, or good
1: and evil habits? This is a fascinating question. Uh, it's something that, that I'm currently working on and, and frankly, uh, struggling with because you know many of the clients that, that call me and ask me to work with them, you know m- most of them I'm happy to work with, and they, I think they're building healthy habits. But then every once in a while I'll see a company that I kind of have to take a step back and really think about whether I want to promote the habit that they're trying to create in, in their users. And so after a lot of contemplation, I, I, I came up with this test that – it's okay to create habits in people, and it's okay even to create addictions—not not on purpose, but as a as a byproduct. You know, it's it's. It, it, I don't think that Facebook can necessarily uh, assure the public that no one will get addicted to, to to Facebook, because let's face it, all sorts of products people get addicted to. I, I don't know if you've seen the show uh, Intervention. There's a show here in the state called Intervention uh, that that profiles different addictions. And, People get addicted to all sorts of crazy things, right? People get addicted to to sniffing uh, gasoline and to hoarding and to uh, you know all kinds of various parts because of underlying uh, root causes of these addictions. Now, you know the, the, the particular product that's inserted that becomes the, 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 the obsession can change. So it's 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 an unfortunate byproduct of many of these products that people get uh, that people get addicted. Um, but, but that being said, you know, if, if Facebook tomorrow said, we're going to do everything we can to stop us addicts from using our product, these people who overuse the product, let's say they come up with that number that we talked about earlier, that use and abuse policy number, well, you know, Facebook wouldn't really be harmed by that. That would be no big deal for Facebook if they, if they cut off. Uh, a small percentage of their users that they saw were abusing their product, were using it too much. In fact, maybe it might benefit the product because it tends to be that people who are obsessively using these products, actually they post stuff that's not very meaningful. You know, we, we, many of us have this one friend um, that's always on Facebook and maybe using Facebook too much. It might not be a bad idea if Facebook kind of clamped down on abuse. Now, what happens, though, when a company depends on the addicts? Now we're in a different situation, right? Consider companies that might depend on addicts. Well, the gambling industry is one that might depend on addicts. Because if you look at the share of revenue that comes from people who spend a tremendous amount of time at the casinos, there's a very small percentage of the population that spends way more time and money than their proportional representation. Right, that a, 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 a large degree of, of casino revenue, and in fact, if you do the math, uh, many of these casinos wouldn't be in business if it wasn't for these people who spend almost all their time and money inside the casino. And we actually see some similar phenomenons with free-to-play games, and it's a, it's a little bit of a troubling phenomenon when we think about it. You know that these companies that that offer these free-to-play games, many of them. Uh, rely on what they call the whales, the people who spend a disproportionate amount of time and money playing these games, and, you know, it, there's a good chance that these people are also unhealthfully addicted, and so that's where it kind of gets into this gray area of, of of when is a company dependent upon the addicts, so my rule to follow is that it's okay to create habits, of course, you know, good habits, the better. It's okay even to create addictions as an unfortunate byproduct, so it's okay to create addiction when your business doesn't depend on it. Because if your business doesn't depend on it, you can do something to help the addicts, as opposed to when relying on those addicts uh, is, is part of the core of your business, that you couldn't survive without it. And so those are the kind of companies I actually won't work for and I won't work with are the ones that depend upon addicting people.
0: Mm-hmm. It sounds a lot like the, um, like the tobacco industry. You know, like, right, right. It, it sounds a lot like that.
1: Right. Now, that's, that's actually uh, that's a good point. That's, uh, the tobacco industry probably couldn't survive uh, if they were just marketing for people to have a cigarette once a month or once a year. You know, you, just because you have a cigarette doesn't mean you're going to get addicted to it. But if you're the, you know, the, the, the tobacco industry couldn't survive if that was the case right they couldn't survive on the casual smoker. or the, the tobacco industry depends upon people who are smoking a pack or more day.
0: so then I, I guess then going on from that and that kind of tobacco analogy does responsibility for creating a healthy um digital experience does that lie with the engineer do you think or does that lie with the the user with the person
1: yeah, it's a, it's a terrific question. So there's a whole chapter in my book that I devote to what, what I call the morality of manipulation. And so uh, I, I think it, it involves, uh, you know, big picture, to answer your question, I think the, the, to answer your question, whose responsibility is it, it? It relies on three parties. It relies on the maker. It relies on the user. And it relies upon greater society in the form of government regulation. I think all of these three bodies have something to, to say about the role of addictive products uh, in, in how we use these addictive products. And again, it's not just about technology. There's all kinds of addictive, pro- addictive products out there. Uh, some are regulated, some are not. There's this relationship between what people are willing to make, what people are willing to use, and how we regulate these various products. That, that, that answers your question of whose responsibility is it. Now, there's a lot of writing about what governments should do about various, uh, various addictive products. Uh, and there's a lot to be said about what the user should, should do or not do. And I think there's a, a good degree of, of, personal responsibility here, particularly when we're talking about technology products. Because let's, let's face it, you know, it's, it's, it's not really fair to put, uh, habit forming technologies in the same, uh, category as addictive drugs, right? Nobody is using Facebook intravenously. Right, it's not it's not the same it's not the same category of tobacco or alcohol or heroin. It, come on, it's not it's not the same thing. Um, so, but that being said, we know we do know that these products have habit forming uh, potential, even addictive potential. And so, I give the maker that third party that I don't think we have give enough guidance to. I wanted to give some kind of tool for the product maker to assess should they. Uh, make a product that's potentially habit-forming, and you know, could they have answered? That's what my book tells them how to do. Is how do you build a habit-forming product so that they can ho- hopefully use uh, these techniques for good? But now the question is, should they? So, if you're the kind of person who wants to to have this moral test, wants to ask yourself, when is it right to manipulate users to change their behavior? I give you a two-part test, and the two-part test is as follows. Number one, are you building a product that you believe materially improves people's lives? And only you can answer that question, this isn't a question for you to judge other people or for other people to judge you. This is a test for yourself looking in the mirror to ask yourself, is the product I'm working on materially improving people's lives? But that's not good enough. Just answering that question alone is not good enough. There's a second part that, that this test, the second question is, And am I the user? Am I the user? Now, why do I put that second part? Isn't it good enough just to make things that I think help people even if I'm not the user? No, it's not. And here's why. Because I want people to break, people who are making potentially addictive products, habit-forming products that could potentially become addiction, I want them to break the first rule of drug dealing. Do you know the first rule of drug dealing? No. The first rule of drug dealing is never get high on your own supply. I wouldn't expect you to know that rule, but that's, that's the first rule of drug dealing. You never get high on your own supply. So what am I doing? I'm making product makers break that rule. Why? So that if there are any negative effects to overusing that product, they're going to be the first ones to know about it. And so if you can follow that two-part test of making something that, A, you believe materially improves people's lives, and, B, you are the user, not only are you in a good moral position, but you're also in a good financial, economic position. Why do I say that? Because if you look at the companies that I described earlier, Facebook and Pinterest and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack, these companies were all founded by people who met this two-part test. They believed they were creating something that materially improved people's lives. And they were scratching their own itch. They made a product that they wanted to use, and that that turned out to be a, a great competitive advantage because you have a lot of information about your target customer because you are your target customer. So that's, I think, the two part test for the maker.
0: That's that's great. then. so, I mean, you're right. If you're a company, then, and you know, if you are design, if you are designing products. Um, and you, you know, and you do have that imperative to create positive habit-forming um, 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 products and services. Then, of course, you're right. If you're scratching your own niche, then surely you'd be more motivated than to create a healthier digital experience.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Now, now, that being said, it doesn't mean that you can't make money without answering in the affirmative to both of those questions. That's not what I said. You can make money making a product that does not material improve people's lives and that you're not the user. That's okay. A lot of drug dealers, if they follow the rule of drug dealing, they don't get all high on their own supply and they can still make money. But that's not the question. The question is, how do I build products that change user behavior in a moral way? If you're the kind of person who cares about the moral implications of building a habit-forming product and you pass that part test, then I say, go forth. Build those healthy habits.
0: Great. So what does an optimal day with technology look like to you? Like a day with, um, I don't know, with positive habit-forming technologies and, and a day with, you know, mind, mindfully being with technology. What does that look like to you?
1: Yeah, so it, this, this is, <laughs> that's a tough question because I, I still struggle with these techniques and, and I still struggle with technology that's so good that it's hard to not use. I mean, I'll be the first to admit that I struggle with many of these technologies, particularly when, Uh, times of stress, when routines are changing. I mean, I I had a beautiful routine set up a few months ago, I'll be very honest with you. And then I had this traumatic change in my life where we have to move now. We've got a place in San Francisco, so we're moving. And all my routine got messed up. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of what we know about habits is that they're context-specific, that uh, your environment has a huge impact on uh, the, the, the likelihood for you to partake in particular habits because of the effect of triggers. And so now that, you know, some furniture is missing and my house is kind of upside down, now my habits are kind of all in a mess. But it used to be, I'll tell you what my ideal day used to be like and what I hope to get back to as soon as I'm, I move into my new place. My ideal day with uh, my technology routines is that the first thing I do, I wake up, I have breakfast with my family. Um, the next thing I do, because it's the same thing I do every day, is I go on a run, Uh, after I get back from my run, I shower, as soon as I'm out of my shower, I make a cup of coffee and I sit down and write. Now to do that writing, I have to use certain tools. First among them is a tool called Freedom. Freedom is a very simple app, all it does is turn off your internet for a set period of time, it's a pre-commitment device. So every morning I tap in 120 minutes, I push OK. and the only way to get back on the internet is to restart my machine. So what did I do? I broke the hook that got me going back online, right? So every time I was feeling bored or writing was difficult or I needed a bit of research, every time I, I, I had that itch, that internal trigger, I would, I want to go online. But by all of a sudden making that behavior more difficult to do, I broke that hook. So I use this pre-commitment device. I use this app to get two hours of quality writing time in the morning. Uh, then it's you know more or less around lunchtime. Then I have my client meetings where we talk about healthy habits, healthy uh, 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 f- uh, how we can use technology to form more healthy habits. I do a lot of angel investing where I constantly look for companies that uh, use the hook for good, uh, and and then I have dinner with my family again, and that. That's about it for the day. <laughs> so, i some kind
0: of speaking engagement. I, I, I really like it though. I mean, it it's, uh, it sounds surprisingly low tech, <laughs> you know. Oh <And laughs> really? It sounds surprisingly low tech, and and this and the whole but this whole idea of um, of hook breaking technologies, you know, using technologies to break break yeah. the hook of um of, of the hooks of other technologies, um, that's that's really interesting. Like, um, I mean, Mac with freedom for Mac, like that's something that I use. Um, yeah. certainly I'm going to link to that in the, in the show notes, but, um, do you yeah. find uh, them, do you find them useful? The hook breaking? Um, bits yes,
1: absolutely. I, you know, I, I, forgot, I forgot to tell you about the last part of my day, which is something oh. that I do institute that I think is very important. So after dinner, uh, we, we put our daughter to bed, Okay. Uh, and then there's usually a couple hours, and that's and that's when I try and be the that's when I, that's only time in my day when I try and uh, get to email. I I actually have taken steps to move the email app uh, on my phone behind several screens, so it's actually kind of difficult for me to get to my email app throughout my day because I find I was checking it too much. It was too easy to get to, um, so I try and only check email once a day in the evening. But then what I found in my evening was that I would uh, check email starting around 8 o'clock, and by uh, 10 o'clock, 10.30, 11 o'clock, sometimes midnight, I'll, I'd still be checking email. And so here's another example of how I broke a hook in my life. I went to the hardware store, and I bought a timer, an, uh, an outlet timer. And this outlet timer, whatever you plug into it, will shut down at a certain time of night. So every night now at 10 p.m., my internet router shuts off. So what does that do? That inserts a bit of, of, of mindfulness. Now I can ask myself, wait a minute, do I really need to be doing this right now or can I get this tomorrow? But so now that when I feel that sensation of, oh, I got to check email, I got to go online, I got to do happening on social media, now I have that breaker that makes the action of getting online a little bit more difficult.
0: And uh, And I like this idea that also that, Hooks are um, um, they're not set in stone, you know. That you actually can break them, you know, that you actually can mindfully and consciously or whatever, um, say, Right, I want this hook to be severed or to be broken, or I want more control over it. And you can actually just do that, like you were saying, with the timer or with moving the email app a few screens down, right? You know? That's, um, that's really useful. Yeah, not, that. not only not only can we, we
1: must, Uh, we absolutely must. I I think that figuring out ways to retain our attention, to retain focus is going to be the competitive advantage of this century. And if you think about it in the last century, access to information was a scarce resource, right? So you went to college because that's where all the books were. I, I remember when I was, when I was applying to college, you know, the the, the literature that the colleges and universities would send us that told us about, uh, you know, why we should come to that school, they all talked about, well, this school has 30,000 books and this school has 40,000 books and this library has this many books. And, of course, today that's absolutely irrelevant. No one cares about how much information is stored in a library because information is ubiquitous. We're drowning in information. So that's no longer a scarce resource. The scarce resource today is the focus, to pay attention long enough to actually absorb any of this information. So I think that all of us, to create something new and useful to contribute to others in the world, we have to be able to control our technology habits. We have to be able to put technology in its place, whether that's email in the workplace, uh, whether that's you know, uh, Facebook at, 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 while we're at college or university, whatever it is that these distractions that keep us from doing the work we know we should be doing, we're going to have to figure out how to break these hooks that we don't want in our life. And I hope we'll have these complementing good habits and products that I think are coming in the pi- are down the pipes right now that will help us also form these healthy habits. Fantastic.
0: Wow, well, Nir, this is amazing. I could keep on going talking to you for hours, I think. <laughs> but, um, but, Nir, just, um, just before, just before we, we wrap up and we go, um, where can people find out more about you Um, And yeah, do you ever, I mean, I've got down here, like, when's your new book coming out? And you said that you write every morning. Do you have a new book coming out?
1: Well, I'm I'm working on it. It might might be a little while, but yeah, I am working on another book. But the the current (laughs) book, Hook, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, I appreciate you asking about where people can learn more. Uh, It's available on Amazon and whatever books are sold. uh, The book is called Hook, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And my website is nearandfar.com, but near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far.com.
0: Brilliant. Well, Nir, thank you so much. Um, I've had a really great time talking to you about this and um, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. My pleasure. Wow. I hope you got something from that episode. Um, knowing the ways in which we are addicted to our digital devices, um, especially in a scientific way, was an absolutely life-changing piece of knowledge for me. So if you want to learn more about The Hook and Nir's work, check out nearandfar.com. That's n-i-r-and-far.com. But if you'd like to get them to the show notes for this episode, including all of the links and all of the books that we spoke about, um, I'll put a link to, links to those in the show notes. That episode really hit the nail in the head for me and I hope that it affected some of you too. I'd love it if you had a second to leave a review on iTunes. They really go a long way in terms of exposure, helping new people to come along and see that the show's worthwhile and it also helps me to stay motivated. I want you to leave an honest review, so if you have some criticisms then please let me know. I read every single one of those reviews. They automatically come to my email and I'm really, really excited to read them. If there are criticisms, I look at them and I apply those things if they're reasonable and obviously justified. I'm always learning. I'm not perfect and I keep moving forward. I hope this episode has inspired you in some way, shape or form. And until next week, stay safe, guys.